Good morning. It is a good day to be alive. It's a good day to come and worship the Lord. And um, I am never, um, I never take it for granted when I have the opportunity to deliver the word of the Lord. And uh, it's such an honor to be here this morning. I usually preach at Calvary, our Calvary campus, and so uh, this morning I get to be here at First Baptist Owasso campus, and it's so good to see so many of you, so many years of, of coming to church here, <coughs> excuse me, and uh, it's kind of funny, you know, after after months and months of being at the Calvary campus and, and only coming here on Sunday nights and then to come here and to worship with you all here at this campus, I almost feel like a little bit of a visitor, right, because I haven't been here for a while, but it still feels like home, and it's just a taste of heaven. Um, you know, I really believe that every Sunday morning is, is, is truly um, a preview of what it will be like in heaven, because you know what we're going to do in heaven for all eternity? We're going to praise the Lord. We're going to sing songs to him. We're going to love on one another, and we're going to enjoy fellowship with, with one another and fellowship with God. And I believe that every Sunday morning, when, when believers, uh, when the bride of Christ comes together to worship, that is exactly what it'll be like in eternity. And so it's just a little bit of a taste of heaven. And so this morning we will continue our study in the book of Revelation. We're going to look at the second church here. And this will be the church of, uh, of Smyrna. And, you know, we, we have lots of different views of what the book of Revelation is meant to be and how should we understand it. There's lots of different interpretations. Most pastors get a little nervous when they have to preach through the book of Revelation. And I am one of those pastors because you, you get into certain spots and you're like, Lord, what in the world am I supposed to do with this? Right? And so there's a historical perspective. And that historical perspective um, was, was held by the likes of William Tyndale, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, John Fox, John Wesley, Charles Finney, Spurgeon, Matthew Henry, the list goes on. And basically those uh, preachers and Bible scholars believe that the book of Revelation had a historical narrative to it. And it wasn't, wasn't entirely focused on the future. But then we have this futurist view, which was made popular in the 20th century by the likes of Schofield, Ryrie, Charles Ryrie, and uh, Hal Lindsey. And I'm not here this morning to open that debate. There's plenty of room for us to have uh, an in-house debate as to how to look at Revelation. But at the end of the day, what I think we need to look at is, is two things. One is that this is the Word of God, and it is relevant to us. If we're just looking at the book of Revelation as something that is, ah, we can't understand it, there's nothing there for us, then we're missing something. Um, is there, is there going to be a struggle in understanding it? Yes, and it's apocalyptic literature. That means that there's something being revealed to us. And so I believe that there is uh, an, an, a side of this that we can look at it and say, that this meant something to its original audience, but it also can mean something to us today as a modern audience. And so I believe that the church uh, in Smyrna, I believe that these seven churches were real historic churches, and I believe that we have something to learn from the revelation of Jesus Christ to them. So when we look at Revelation, we, we remember whose revelation it is. And this has been a debate among a lot of, a lot of scholars, a lot of liberal scholars will say uh, that, this, that this book doesn't really belong, and you get into issues of authorship, and why didn't John mention X, Y, and Z? 
At the end of the day, when we look at Revelation, we don't look at Revelation uh, in the same way that we would look at some of the other books of the Bible. What do I mean by that? Well, when I look at the book of, of Ephesians, who's the author? Well, Paul wrote that. But ultimately, we believe that God is the author of all Scripture, but there's still this human authorship, correct? But when we look at Revelation, John is just that middleman. God is, God is speaking, but it's, it's literally the revelation of Jesus Christ, and John is writing down what he sees and what he hears. Does that make sense? So he, he doesn't have the, the, uh, the same type of authorial intent that we would give to a Paul or someone else who wrote one of the other books of the Bible. And so we come to the book of Revelation with that in mind, that we look at this book, we recognize that we're going to have some struggles, but we also recognize that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and if that is true then there's application for us today. And it did mean something to its first century audience, but it also has something to say to us today. So my prayer is that as we work through looking at these seven churches, that we wouldn't just see this as distant and irrelevant, but that we will see this as meaning something for us today. And as we look at the rebuke or the encouragement that Jesus Christ offers to each of these seven churches, that we would look at our church in the same way. We would ask the same questions. Lord, what would you have for us to see? As you speak to these seven churches, what would you have us as First Baptist Owasso to learn from this? So we're going to look at Smyrna. Smyrna, Smyrna has, uh, has some issues here that they're going to have to work through. Uh, but it's beautiful. Christ's words are straightforward. And it may be concerning to us if we have misplaced our hope. Because if we're hoping in Christ only for happiness and bliss in this life, then we're going to be let down. And we'll see that as we look at Christ's words to the church in Smyrna. So my major doctrine this morning that I want to prepare and defend is faithfulness, not happiness, is the goal of the church. I want you to think about that. Faithfulness, not happiness, is the goal of the church. And when we start to, we start to think like that, everything else starts to come into perspective. And I, I love this quote from, from Tom Rainer. He says, a church cannot survive long term where members are focused on their own preferences. And so we start with this idea, if you, can, if you can look at any church that is under persecution, any church that is truly struggling, they start to see more clearly I'm going to ask a rhetorical question, you know, I'm not looking for an answer, but do you think that the persecuted underground church in China is arguing over what color the carpet is in the building they meet in? No way. We're not focused on personal preference. We're focusing on faithfulness to Christ. And everything else starts to be put into that perspective. And so I want to prime our thoughts and our minds with this idea that faithfulness, not happiness, is the goal of the church. And that if we are focused on our personal preferences, we're not going to be able to survive long term. We are missing the mark. So as we get started this morning, please stand and let's get into the scripture here. We'll, go, we'll be in Revelation chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 8 through 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers 
will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we're going to make four stops this morning as we unpack this scripture. We're going to take a look at divine observation. We're going to take a look at divine feedback and look at, you know, the interesting fact that uh, this church is one of the only two churches that doesn't get rebuke. There is no call to repentance. Philadelphia is the only other church besides Smyrna that doesn't get this rebuke. And so we'll kind of look at that and what that means. We'll look at divine prescription, um, and which is the prescription is to be faithful unto death. And so we'll try to look at that and say, what Lord should we learn from that? And then our fourth stop will be practical application. And we'll be looking at setting our course, course correction indicators, as well as short-term gratification versus long-term benefit. So divine observation, divine feedback, divine prescription, and practical application. So let us get started here with this idea of divine observation. And you look at the, if you look at the scripture, uh, all throughout, as, as Jesus Christ addresses each of the seven churches, what we see is that he starts out with, hey, I have observed this, I see this. And right here with, with Smyrna, he addresses her in a way that would only make sense if she were a real church. Um, Jesus states his claim to authority with his opening statement. He says, uh, he says to the angel, he says, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that Jesus Christ is saying that this, this is my authority. And every single church he addresses, he starts with some claim to his authority and who he is. Coming back to, he's the one who's revealing these things. And he says, to the words of the first and the last. And so we see this idea of this preeminence, this, that Jesus Christ is both the first and he's the final authority. But he also roots his authority and, and his vindication uh, to this authority because he came to life after being dead. What is, he, what is he talking about? Well, he's talking specifically about his death and resurrection. You know, we, we have no hope if Jesus Christ stayed dead. There's no hope if Jesus Christ stayed dead. You church in Smyrna, you're about to face persecution. Hey, by the way, be faithful unto death. If Jesus Christ doesn't preface this with he's the one who has the ability to conquer death, there'd be an issue there, wouldn't there? It's like, hey, go with me here. You're about to die. And then nothing further is said. But no, he prefaces it. He sets, the, he sets the stage. He says, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. And Jesus Christ is the precursor, right? He is the firstborn among many brethren. How? Because he was the firstborn to be raised from the dead. We are all looking forward to a future resurrection. But Jesus has tasted of that first. And it's really an interesting idea to look at that, but... For, for this morning, for the sake of time, I want us to think of two things. One, sacrament day. Well, what is sacrament day? Well, it's when we have the Lord's Supper. And what do we focus on when we have the Lord's Supper? We focus on the death of Christ. He says, do this in remembrance of me, right? He says, my body was broken for you. My blood shed for you. And so when we take the sacrament, we are remembering and we're reflecting on Christ's death. But it doesn't end there. We also look at the Sabbath day which is Sunday now, we changed it. Why? Why did we change it from, from Saturday to Sunday? Well, because of that's when the resurrection happened. And so we do not forget and we do not leave behind the death of Christ, but we don't stop at the death of Christ because if Christ remained dead, we are in trouble. As Paul said, if Christ did not rise from the dead, then we are to be pitied most of all. Okay, 
So what does that mean? Well, we've got to move on from the death of Christ, recognizing the power in the death of Christ, that he did die for our sins. He died in our place. He is the propitiation for our sins and for the sins of the world. But it doesn't end there. We have to move on to looking at that. Jesus Christ came back to life. And so we look at that. And so every Sunday, what we should be doing is celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what the early church did. They would focus on this. And it's a beautiful thing for us to remember those two things, the sacrament day, any day that we would have the Lord's Supper, remembering and focusing on the Lord's death, but not stopping there, moving to look at what it means for Jesus Christ to be raised from the dead, and therefore he can be our true hope uh, as we hope in a final resurrection. But Jesus, he, he pays attention to the tribulation and the poverty of the church of Smyrna. You know, and so it's interesting to look at this. A lot of times uh, when we see people who are, who are suffering from poverty, not far behind puff, uh, poverty is some sort of suffering. Uh, and so there is a correlation there. But it's interesting to look at this because it's, it's serious enough that it catches Jesus' eye, right? So we're talking about divine observation. He says, I see your tribulation and I see your poverty. Um, and there's this, this general idea that they are struggling. And poverty has something to do with this. Uh, but Jesus says to him, he says, but you are rich. You know, this isn't a contradiction. Jesus isn't saying, oh yeah, you're poor, but like, wait, no, you're rich. He's saying, you know, temporally, you're poor. You don't have much money. You don't have many physical things. But you have everything you need in the spiritual world, right? And he's, he's almost he's saying, not a contradiction of, no, you're not really poor. He's like, no, you're poor. There's members in your church who are poor. And collectively, members of the church make up the general health of the church. Okay, so if we put this in perspective for us, First Baptist Owasso, if Jesus Christ was to look at us and give us some divine observation, give us some feedback, so to speak, what would he see? Well, we would see that we're pretty well off, right? I don't, care, I don't care how much money you make. If you live in the United States, you're well off by, by world standards, okay? So Jesus Christ would literally say, First Baptist Church Owasso, I see your wealth. He would say that. He would absolutely say that. And so as we as individuals in our economic status contribute to the economic health and status of the church, so too it was with the case here with Smyrna that these people were poor and they were coming together to worship, but their poverty was worth noting. And Jesus doesn't pass it over. He says, I see it. And it's interesting when we look at this overlying theme, this underlying theme, if you will, that Jesus is paying attention to even the small things. And the local church has the attention of God. And that's what we are to see here. But Jesus says, let me refocus this as, as if he says, Smyrna, see your poverty in light of what really matters. And you know what's interesting is that oftentimes temporal riches lead to spiritual poverty. Think about that. Oftentimes temporal riches lead to spiritual poverty. You know, when we pray the prayer that David prayed, he says, Lord, let me have enough that I don't sin, that I don't steal, but don't give me so much that I forget my need for you. And that's the balance that we daily have to, have to strive for. You know, we're not asking to be broke and starving to death. We want to be able to take care of our families. There's nothing wrong with that. But we don't want to reach this, the, you know, the point where we think, man, this is, I've done it. I have no need for you, Lord. That's when we're in trouble. So Jesus is refocusing. He says, I see your poverty, but you're rich. And he's speaking to their spiritual riches. And it's, it's just interesting, though, but we refocus, and our goal is to gain spiritual riches. And our spiritual riches that we can gain 
are more satisfying and enduring than any temporal riches we could ever have. Uh, you know, we don't have time to go into it, but study after study has shown that people with money are not more happy. People w- with money oftentimes are less happy. Uh, the, the old philosopher, theologian, Boethius, uh, he talks about money. He says, the more money you have, the more problems you have. He says, because you got all these nice things, well, now what do you got to do? Well, you got to hire guards to take care of your treasures, and now you got to watch those guards, make sure they're not stealing from you. And you just, you know, problems multiply. Um, not to say that we all have to be poor, but the goal is to gain spiritual wealth, not necessarily temporal wealth. And I'll leave it there for now. But let's take a look at this idea here. He says that you're being attacked. Um, He says in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. But what are they? Jesus says, but they are a synagogue of Satan. What in the world does that mean? Well, it seems to be that there is a group of people who are claiming to be Jews. And they're persecuting the church in Smyrna. Um, and, And at least what we can say is that these folks were pretending to be covenant people. When we say, when we claim that we are Jews, well, not us, but anyone who claims to be a Jew, you're, you're claiming the covenant, that you're claiming that you've been sanctified, that you've been separated as Israel was separated, right? Set aside for God. But that has been expanded, that there is no longer Jew, nor Greek, nor Gentile, right? This idea that we are all the bride of Christ, but these people seem to be pretending to be covenant people and aren't truly covenant people. And if they were, they wouldn't be persecuting the bride of Christ, which is the church. And so we see this, and Jesus is saying, I'm gonna call it like it is, they claim to be that, but they're not, they're not Jews, right? Not everyone who is born of Abraham is truly of Israel. It's not about heritage. It's not about what, you were, what bloodline you were born into. We as Gentiles are grafted into this family that we can truly be part of Israel, the covenant people. These people were pretending to be covenant people and they weren't covenant people. Otherwise, they wouldn't be attacking the church of Christ, which is the bride of Christ. Much more can be said about that, but let's move on a little bit. Let's look at this idea here in verse 10. He says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. And it's this interesting idea that Smyrna was under attack, and clearly attacks were not trials that were meant to test and build up, um, but they were meant to tempt and destroy. And so we would do well to recognize the difference between the temptations that the devil brings and the temptations that God brings. So this is kind of sticky, sticky stuff here when you start to talk about, well, does God tempt people? Well, James says that God tempts no one. He cannot be tempted. Okay, well, we've got to look at the word temptation, and, and we're not going to get into the Greek and, you know, all of that. But there's basically two ideas. One is, God may very well bring trials our way. And there is there's so much scripture that you could look at in, in, in seeing this, that, that God allows things to happen. But what is interesting is that there is a very clear distinction between the trials God brings, which, meant, which are meant to test us and to build us up, and the, and the temptations the devil brings, which are meant to destroy us and to do us harm. Um, John Owen, the, the great Puritan theologian, he says, The reason for which God tests us, first he does it to show man what is in his heart. He would have us to either see the grace or corruption that dwells there. Trials can also reveal our thankfulness and our humility. And so we see this when God brings trials our way, he's letting us see what's truly inside of our hearts. 
He lets us go through some tough stuff so that we can, we can see whether grace lives there or corruption lives there. It's a questioning, right, internally, what's going on? But what does the devil do? He's, he is not concerned with us getting stronger. The devil means to do something far di- different. He seeks to destroy us, to distract us, and to sell us something less than what God has planned for us. And so the church in Smyrna was, was charged to, 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 to look forward to this. It's coming. And for 10 days, the devil's going to persecute you. He's going to throw you in jail. But do not fear, right? And so it's interesting when you think about what is the, what is the whole jail system meant for? Well, it's meant to take bad people and keep them from doing further bad things, right? What does the devil use it for? He's going to use it to take God's people and keep them from doing the work God has set before them. Do you see that? He's messing, he's messing up this, this deal. And the devil will use any means at his disposal to get us off the track that we're supposed to be on. And he will use society. He will use people. He will use anything that he can get his hands on to derail us. And so we've got to look at this, but here's, here's our hope. That God foreknows our future trials, and he forewarns. And that's how he can say in verse 10, do not fear. So we have hope because God is sovereign, and God is not waiting for more information to come. And he's not, he's not like, oh man, I'm not sure, I can't see it, I don't know what's about to happen. But guys, hold on, hold on, I think it's going to be okay. No, God foreknows exactly what's going to happen, including what the devil would do to try to test us and to, and to get us off track. We can have great confidence in God when he says, do not fear. We can, we can actually believe that and say, okay, I have nothing to fear. Why? Because he knows perfectly exactly what is about to happen. We don't see it. We're like, Lord, this next step doesn't look good. It looks bad. The devil's throwing me in prison. And you know what he says to him? He says, he says you know what? Uh, be faithful unto death. <laughs> great. Thanks, Lord. <laughs> And so we're, we see this idea that, that God foreknows our future trials, and he forewarns, he tells us to get ready for them, but he ends with saying, do not fear. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. And so we'll, we'll come back to this here in just a second, but let's take a look at this idea of no rebuke. So we get this divine feedback. It's interesting to note, like Ephesus, uh, Smyrna received no uh, rebuke or call to repentance. So Ephesus, when God was, was, was talking to them, he says, I see you've done a lot of good things. But here's one thing I have against you. You have forsaken your first love. And he calls them to repent and to, and to turn away and to come back. But we don't see this with Smyrna. We don't see any rebuke or a call to repentance. Now I want you to imagine that Jesus Christ is giving us uh, some feedback. And everything he says to us is pretty good so far. He doesn't ever call us for repentance. He doesn't call us, uh, you know, he doesn't rebuke us. We would, we would be tempted to say, man, things are going well. And it may be so. But it's interesting that when we look at this, that we have the opportunity to be faithful and to remain faithful. And so what I believe is happening here is that there's no need for rebuke. There's no need for repentance because they are currently being faithful. Repentance is needed when you're not faithful. Do you get that? You need to repent when you're not faithful. If you are being faithful, there's nothing to rebuke. There's nothing to repent of. 
Okay, but what we see here is that there's no divine feedback, but what it moves into is a divine prescription. He says, doing well, everything's good, let me encourage you, be faithful unto death. So they knew something about attacks, right? Uh, and, 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 and because God foreknows our trials, and he, he, he forewarns us, he, he sees what's coming, and he allows us to really get ready. Uh, the, the boxer philosopher Mike Tyson once said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. And I think that's good advice. You know, Mike doesn't always have good things to say, but that's some good insight, right? Everyone's got a plan until you get punched in the face. And what, which, what, what we should expect is to get punched in the face. If you think that once you become a Christian, everything is going to be great, there will be no trials, there will be no suffering, there will be no pain, you're in trouble. You're about to get punched in the face. You're about to get woke up. And so Satan means to do us harm. And so we got to look at this um, faithfulness in light of suffering. The divine prescription is to remain faithful. You're faithful right now. Great job, Smyrna. Great job, First Baptist Owasso. But I want you to remain faithful. There is no remaining faithful unless you're currently faithful. Do you get that? you got to be currently faithful in order to remain faithful. So, Smyrna, great job. You're being faithful. Remain faithful unto death. So what is happening here is Jesus is preparing Smyrna and setting her up. He's setting up her expectations. Uh, and this is one of the good things that we can do in order to help us remain faithful is to have clear goals and the clear expectations of what, what's coming our way. And, and, and so what should they expect? They should expect to be persecuted. And they should expect to be put to death. John Owen is worth quoting once again. He says, we will not know the power of grace until we feel the power of the testing. We will not know the power of grace until we feel the power of the testing. And we will be tested. And through the true trials and testing that comes our way, we will see the true grace of God as he, as he, as he brings us through it. As he is capable of saying in verse 10, do not fear the suffering you're about to endure. So we see this idea, but our hope is not lost. And the second death here he talks about uh, is, is, you know, has to do with the lake of fire that's referenced in Revelation 20. Um, and so for those who die the second death, the suffering is eternal. Okay. You know, when we die our first death, when we die that natural death as, as men and women, there's some pain and some suffering involved in that. But the second death, the suffering is eternal. But what Christ is saying is, is those who die the first death only are not truly hurt by the second death. Because the second death has no power over them. So there will be a judgment. There will be a time where everything is called into account. And those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, they will only die once, Right? I don't, I don't, I'm not going to get into rapture theology here, but maybe you don't die. I don't know, okay? But generally we die once. But what he's saying is that there's also a second death. But here's the thing. For you believers who persevere, he's not saying based on your performance. He's basically saying those who are Christians, he's going to keep us, right? There's nothing that can snatch us out of, the, out of, out of Jesus' hand. Those the Father has given will not be lost. So it's not about our performance, but he's given us this idea that we persevere, we conquer, and when we do, the second death will have no power over us. 
So I want to I wanna step into our, our, our closing moments here with some practical application of looking at this in light of setting our course. So remaining faithful means staying the course, but before we can stay the course, we've got to have an idea uh, of what our course is and identify and set our course. And so I've got three things I want us to have in our minds as we think about um, targets for the course we ought to set. Number one is truth. Knowing and contending for the faith so that we might worship in truth. And this is one of the things we see that, that Jesus Christ is telling these churches. He's saying, great job in not hanging out with the Nicolaitans. Great job in not ha- hanging out with these people who are false teachers. Why? Because we should be contending for the truth. We as a church today ought to be contending for the truth. Why? Because it has something to do with how we worship. To the degree that you are worship- worshiping God in falseness, to that degree you're committing idolatry. Think about that. If you've got messed up views of God, you're committing idolatry in one way or another. And that's a problem with us taking the bits and pieces and like, you know, like build a bear, build a God. Like, I I think my God looks like this, and he has this, and he has this. Ooh, I don't like those Old Testament things. Let's get rid of some of that stuff. Get rid of this divine judgment. I don't want to see Jesus coming and riding on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth ready to slay all those who oppose him. That isn't my God. And we, we start to build our own God. To the degree in which the God in our head is different from the God of the word, to that degree we are committing idolatry. Excuse my voice, I'm like hanging on by a thread. (laughs) But we have to be looking at this. So setting course corrections um, comes after we've already set our course. But where should our course be heading? Truth, knowing and contending for the faith so we might worship in truth too. Loving Christ, never turning away from our first love, but heading towards a deeper love for Christ. So this is one of the other things that, that Ephesus was, they were, they were challenged on. You've forsaken your first love. We should take note of that. Love Christ, never turning from him, but heading towards a deeper love for Christ over time. And then three, faithfulness, which presents itself in patience, endurance, and in sacrifice. So when we get to this idea, okay, we've got our course set, we, we may come to a time where we start to see that there's course correction indicators. Well, what are those? We might find ourselves in need of course correction, and when we do, we ought to be quick to repent. So when Ephesus was challenged, hey, this I have against you, the correct response is to repent and to turn from what Jesus just said he has against you. And so too, we um, ought to act quickly. However, we would do well to recognize indicators that tell us when we are in need of course correction in the first place. But we must recognize that trials are not one of them. Contrary to popular opinion, trials often are indicators that tell us that we are on the right course. Get that. Trials often tell us that we are on the right course. I will debate anyone on that point. We are really messing people up when we tell people to come to Jesus and you'll never see sickness, you'll never see challenges, you'll never die. You'll... Are we kidding ourselves? Paul, it's like, Jesus says, I want to show you how much you'll suffer for my name's sake. That's the ministry I want you to sign up for. Pick up your cross. What is that? It's an instrument of death. Jesus says, anyone who is not willing to pick up his cross and follow me, right? Says, no, you have no part in this. You put your hand to the plow and look back, you don't have any part with me. Those are tough words. But trials are not course correction indicators. Trials actually tell us we are on the right course. Why? Because the world hated Jesus, and if they hated Jesus, 
and I hate you. Satan hates you. And he's going to bring everything he can to distract you. So God's, God's primary goal is not our happiness in this life, but a knowledge of him. William Lane Craig outlines that very well. And so when we start to look at suffering as Christians, we need to remember that. God's primary goal for Christians in this life is not happiness, but a knowledge of him, because that is the only thing that will transcend into eternity. All the trials that we face here, all the suffering that we face here, that'll grow dimmer and dimmer the further and further we're into eternity, correct? But the eternal knowledge of God, the thing that saves us is knowing God. That is God's primary goal. So let us close with this final thought. Short-term gratification versus long-term benefit. We are tempted to run from the attacks. We are tempted to run from these trials and to settle for things that offer us short-term gratification. But true faithfulness means turning down the short-term gratification in order to receive the long-term benefit. So do not seek an easy life and miss the bread of life. And do not miss the one, Jesus Christ, who can give you the crown of eternal life. And I want to close by reading one quick little excerpt from the Fox's Book of Martyrs I borrowed from Chad this morning. Polycarp was an early church leader, and he actually was a pastor of this church in Smyrna. Now, years later, if we, if we believe Revelation was written in uh, 90-ish um, A.D., Polycarp came later, but he was a disciple of, of John, the beloved disciple. Okay? Polycarp died um, as a martyr. And it's really interesting, though, as Polycarp was being ready to be burned alive, uh, he, he basically says to them, um, he says, they, 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 say, they, 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 they were saying, we're going to send beast after you, all of these. He says, call them, for we cannot repent from what is better to what is worse. But it is noble to turn from what is evil to what is righteous. But what happened is basically they get ready and they're going to burn him. And it says this in, this in the book of Martyrs here. It says, The Romans had threatened Polycarp with beasts and with fire, but nothing would make him turn against Christ. After his prayer, the men lit the fire, which sprang up quickly, but even the fire wouldn't touch him as it formed an arch around Polycarp's body. The Romans did not know what to make of this. In the end, the Romans commanded an executioner to stab him. A great quantity of blood put out the remaining fire, and Polycarp bled to death. Polycarp said, For 86 years, the Lord has been good to me, and today I will not forsake him. And he died holding on to Jesus Christ. So our call this morning is twofold. One, if you don't know Jesus, the second death is a true threat to you. If you do know Jesus, the second death has no power over you. Jesus died so that we might have life eternally. And so this morning I want to offer an invitation and, and, and I want two types of people to respond. If you're not a believer, now is the time. Do I believe in the sovereignty of God? Absolutely. But you know what? We also have moral responsibility and we are, to, we are told to respond. In Hebrews it says that today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as you did in the rebellion. So if God is calling you, respond. And two, if you are a believer, 
I want you to be encouraged that the trials that you face, you do not have to fear. And that God sees it. Jesus Christ sees it. The local church has the attention of God.